This podcast represents my opinion and the opinion of my guests. This is not medical advice, and I am not establishing a patient-physician relationship with any listener. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each patient is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions you may have. Welcome, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Not Your Doc podcast. Um, I'm your host, Vanessa. I'm here with our producer, Seth, and of course, Mr. Not Your Doc himself, Dr. Charles Tadros. Hey, good morning, everybody. We are very excited about today's episode. We've got another um, clinician friend here of Dr. Tadros's, um, Dr. Larry Shapiro. Yeah, of our whole office. Everybody's met met him. We're huge fans of Dr. Shapiro. I'm particularly excited to have you here today. Dr. Shapiro is our very first talk therapist on the pod. Yes. Um, We reference therapy a lot, and um, we're super excited to hear your point of view. I'm, I'm glad you invited me. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you. Thank you, Larry. Um, Dr. Shapiro actually came to our, uh, our attention, his work actually from, I guess, Dr. Luis Jufra. Dr. Jufra is a psychiatrist here in town, but in, and has known Dr. Shapiro for many, many years. Um, and, um, and Dr. Uh, Shapiro had worked, and he's going to fill us in on some other things because he has such an back, extensive background that plays into why we have him here today. Mm-hmm. He has so much experience, clinical experience, um, um, that uh, he was at St. Louis Behavioral Medicine Institute, where I refer a lot, and then now he is uh, on a in, uh, at Quantum Behavioral, uh, where he does, he focuses his practice on uh, veterans, uh, military veterans with PTSD, especially with, that uh, require other uh, special treatments, including uh, psilocybin. Well, eventually it'll be psilocybin, and hopefully, but right now for ketamine, and so that we we work from a ketamine clinic. So Dr. Shapiro came to us uh, just talking about about uh, common patients, and so thank you for joining us today. We're not going to quite talk about ketamine and stuff like that. We'll do a little bit towards the end, but we want to talk about your extensive uh, clinical experience, uh, because I think mm-hmm. that's where uh, most of our patients and most of our clients, and I think our hearing audience would like to know about. Um, a lot of stuff happens one-on-one behind closed doors, um, and uh, and a lot of people need therapy, um, and, uh, but but you do it kind of special, and and uh, and we appreciate that. I think our patients appreciate that, um, and I thank you for coming. It was a pleasure. So, you know, Whatever questions, fire away. Sure, absolutely. Um, Dr. Shapiro, uh, any time over the uh, over several years, if I have a patient uh, that is seeing mental health professionals and I ask them uh, what their diagnoses are, or or if they're seeing a therapist, a talk therapist, a, a psychotherapist, you know, what what are the short term and long term goals uh, are? Oftentimes, the patients don't know their diagnoses, or certainly are, are incomplete or inaccurate, mm-hmm. and certainly really don't know the short term and long term goals of talk therapy. Uh, can you kind of explain kind of what what's, what psychotherapy I call talk therapy and and kind of uh, kind of how people get into it and what they should be looking for for a good therapy? Uh, sure. Well, for, let me just address the uh, the diagnosis part and the and the goal setting. A lot of times, you know, the diagnosis is there really for insurance reimbursement. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. right. So if you've got therapists who don't take insurance then a formal diagnosis becomes almost irrelevant mm-hmm. um, to them. They're just treating them for what they're, whatever the symptoms are. Mm-hmm. So it, it wouldn't be unusual to not have a diagnosis. Now, for me, I'd like to at least conceptualize Right. It. You know, there, here's the diagnostic problem mm-hmm. that we're dealing with because that's going to lead my, my treatment 
in terms of how I think, but mm-hmm. you know, if someone is coming in with a primary complaint of hopelessness, mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean that they have major depressive disorder. Sure. Yes. So, and so a lot of times the complaints that people have don't fit neatly into the DSM categorization. So sometimes just diagnosis um, becomes problematic. Because it doesn't fit neatly. And the DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental uh, Illnesses or Multiple? Right. So that basically, it's our workbook. Mm-hmm. Right. It says, um, or a reference book, here's your cluster of symptoms. Right. What, what. This is how we'd categorize you. Yeah. Y- yeah. So, but but even now, for most insurance, they're using a different, they're using ICD-10. ICD-10, um, yeah. So, but but just trying to come up with a diagnosis for a lot of people. Um, in most cases, it's really based on what, what you're wanting, what kind of symptom relief you're wanting, but you might not fit into cleanly or neatly into a diagnostic category. That's sure. right. I tell people the same thing you say, just because you have, you can't focus or remember, it doesn't mean you have ADD or ADHD, et cetera. And it's, uh, right. that's, I think it's a big, big deal. Thank you yeah, for right. clarifying that. So then in terms of goals, you know, it, what is it that the person's coming in with? My, you know, when I was in graduate school, the, the, the question that we were told to ask is, so um, how can I help? Mm-hmm. Then for me, it evolved in, well, how can I help? That puts all the responsibility on that, me. Yeah, right. To do all the helping. To do all the helping. Yes. So then the question became, what can I help you with? Mm-hmm. So now there's a shared responsibility mm-hmm. to now, and this is kind of an outgrowth of my work with, with psychedelics in kind of understanding therapy even more deeply than I did before Mm -hmm. was how do you intend to use psychotherapy? Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. Which is a very, you know, it's a very subtle paradigm shift, but the implication is you're going to use this. Right. You're not going to sit back passively. Yeah. It's a tool. It's another tool. That, that dovetails beautifully into, you know, a, a big question that I have for you, which is, you know, what is, the work of therapy. You know, we a, a big um, a priority in our conversation today is to help people who are listening to this really understand um, what their role would be in a therapeutic relationship and how exactly what you said, how they're going to use psychotherapy. So what is the work of therapy for on the patient side or the client side? And is it an active or a passive process? Is this something I just show up and expect to be fixed, bathed with your knowledge and wisdom and, and sayings? Or is this some, an active participation on my end to get benefits from? I, I like to think that I'm brilliant, that a couple of words will kill I love it. <laughs> yes. uh, you know, that, that would be wonderful. Um, so... A lot of people come to therapy, their primary or initial or only experience is what they see in the movies mm. and on TV. Yes. yes. And what they see in the movies on TV is you sit yep. and you talk about how horrible your life yes. is. Right. And then the therapist nods their head nods. and says, uh-huh. that, that must right. be very hard for right. you. Right. right. Or how does that make you feel? How does that make you feel? <laughs> and, mm. and frankly, actually in training, that's a lot of it because um, especially me, having been in graduate school in the 80s um, in the Bay Area, a lot of it was, you know, still based in this kind of grounding in psychoanalytic mm-hmm. psychotherapy, which is a very passive, yes. for a therapist, a very, very passive. And a very long-term, multi-year. Oh. A decade. Decades sometimes. Yes. And, and so my dissatisfaction with that type of approach started in graduate school. Yeah. I was like, holy cow. 
you I just have to lay there because you you have to go through it also when you're in graduate school. That's right. Let's have you go do you something a, like you become oh a my client God, or a what patient. What am I doing right? here? Yeah. I'm just talking off the top of my head. Right. Right. It's not really doing anything. Um, so what people see in their first experience is through popular media, which is a very, very passive approach based in this passive approach that we were taught in graduate school. Mm-hmm. This is what therapy is. You talk in this kind of stream of consciousness, eventually you'll develop an insight yeah. into the problem mm-hmm. that yeah. you're coming in with and miraculously- Yes, you'll stumble upon prom- the aha. And yeah. you, it goes away. And my job is just to sit there, guide literally you. almost guide you, yeah. but not too much. Too much, right. You can't do it too much, right. Um, can't give you an answer, right. Right. So um, I, I ended up eventually, I was not really happy with the training and the, the whole philosophy, mm-hmm, that philosophy. Mm-hmm. So I did a postdoctoral fellowship at SLU mm-hmm. in, on their behavioral treatment unit, mm-hmm. mm. which was at the time, it was great. It was the only um, mental health inpatient unit run by psychologists mm-hmm. with the help of nursing staff. Mm-hmm. We had a psychiatrist, but everything, these were treatment-resistant, obsessive-compulsive disorder, mm-hmm. panic disorder, agoraphobia. People would come from all over the country. Mm-hmm. It was also a time when we could pe- keep people in the hospital for 30, 60, 90 yeah, days. Right. Yeah. And we could really do Watch. great, great work right. You know, over that period. And right. the nice thing about that was it was directed. Right. Right, you have OCD with contamination. We're going to take you out and do exposures right. for contamination. We're not going to allow you to wash, mm-hmm. and then you find out it's like, holy cow, these people are getting better. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. But I want every just a second. I want everybody just to pause uh, because this is this the stuff that's coming from Dr. Uh, Shapiro's lips is gold. Is gold. Uh, this is the stuff that we deal with at a micro level, not nothing like that. But but what he just said about exposure and response therapy, extinguishing people who are so OCD that they can't even they can't finish a meal they can't they can't they can't even they, there's nothing they're so stuck they're they're frozen they're so stuck they're like some people you know look they are let's say functionally anorexic right yes yes because yes. because they can't you know let's say they take a fork and put on the plate but because of a thought right they have to repeat it until it's good enough and so you keep repeating it to the point where you can't actually take a bite. Can't right, eat. Right, so right, you become right. functionally anorexic. So you right. might be misdiagnosed right. as having anorexia when it's right. really an OCD, an mm-hmm. OCD issue. Mm-hmm. Um, where people would come with bloody hands, right? Because they're washing, washing so, much. so much. Not just washing, but yeah. they're maybe they're using steel wool yeah. Yeah. to get the contaminants. Sure, sure. So we would right. get that level. Yeah, the most severe, the, obviously. The most severe. Right. Um, but we could do these treatments, exposure and response prevention in a controlled environment. Right, so if someone, you right. know, at worst case scenario, especially in the winter, you know, is in the shower mm-hmm. and they can't, they don't feel like they're getting clean enough, mm-hmm. well, they'll end up in the emergency room with hypothermia. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. You know, because they're in the shower for five, six more hours in the middle yeah. of the winter. Right. And they've got hypothermia. Well, we can bring them into the unit. Mm-hmm. We can yeah. take the knobs off of all of the yep. the sink and the shower. It's like, you're not going to shower for the next 30 days. Yeah. We'll give you water to brush right. your teeth. Right. Washcloth to wash up you know, a little bit, but Mm -hmm. that exposure and exposure to contaminants and then preventing them from their typical response or compulsive Mm -hmm. behavior. I mean, the, the research pretty clear. This is what works. Right. Right. And this is not, and you had medications on board, you had psychiatrists, but the the focus of the whole unit was behavioral modification through these techniques. Right, because the people that got there, they were not responding to medication. They had failed medicines, right. And and even people who um, were having brain surgery, like a bilateral Mm -hmm. cingulotomy, Mm -hmm. they're still, you know, you have a brain surgery and you wake up and you still are symptomatic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So these are, you know, some of the people that we deal with. So for me, it was a real eye opener right. that if you took a more active approach to these problems, mm-hmm. people actually get better. Right. You know, forgetting like the time frame, they just get better right. as opposed to sitting around, listening, waiting for them to get better. Right. Exactly. Now we can actually do stuff that's based in research, mm-hmm. based in experience. And if you just do it, it works. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the, although these are most severe, this also translates to much milder illnesses that we see as outpatient. And, Absolutely. Uh, and that's, and that's the, I think that's a, certainly a take home message for our. Right. So when you talk about, so what's the work? Mm-hmm. Um, I tell everybody, you know, a couple things when they come in that especially people say, I just need to learn how to cope with whatever it is. Sure. My first response is that's not good enough. Mm-hmm. Coping implies you will continue to have this problem. Sure. Right. Barely the, holding on. Right. So you set right. the bar too low. Right. The goal for therapy has to be the elimination of the symptoms, not coping with the symptoms. Yeah. So not a response, but a remission. Not enough time remission to have a Remission or cure. Or cure. You know, yeah. mental I don't health think is- I, I, I'm going to tell you, and you know this already, nobody talks to remission or cure in psychiatry. No, we, no. We, we barely talk right. about it in diabetes, uh, for, right. you know, let alone severe mental health issues. Yeah. But for me, you have to set up the expectation. Yes, yeah. that's that right. There's the potential for you to be good, free of this, rid, yeah. to be rid of it. Yeah. Um, that these are symptoms of an underlying problem. And if we can actually work with that, you don't have to live with it. Yeah. And a lot of times people will integrate, when I say they, they integrate this pathology yes. with their personality. It's like, well, right. I've always been an anxious person. Right. Like, right. Well, as soon as you say you're an anxious person, now you've integrated a pathology Into with your, your personality. Yeah. Yeah. And Absolutely. so now you can't- You can't, you reject, can't your reject your You can't reject yourself, right? So now <clears throat> part of the work is like, we have to separate mentally. This mm-hmm. is a pathology that doesn't belong there, like a bacterial infection. Mm-hmm. And then you've got your character over here. Mm-hmm. We need to separate this, so that might be part of it. Mm-hmm. But it's also setting the expectation that between each session, you're going to have work to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so some of it might be something as simple as if I know someone's coming in because they've got some issues and I, uh, with confidence. Confidence, mm-hmm. Well, I know when people suffer with low confidence, low self-esteem, I know that they overuse the word sorry. Mm-hmm. And they've probably been told over the course of a lifetime, stop saying sorry. So my thing is, this is an actual homework assignment. This isn't me just ca- casually telling you to stop saying sorry. Your homework is eliminate the word sorry from your vocabulary mm-hmm. when you're talking, in your text messages, in your emails. Mm-hmm. And when people do that, you know, when I explain, it's like, look, every time you say, I'm sorry, you're basically telling yourself that you're guilty. Right. Because sorry implies guilt. Yes. But you didn't do anything. Right. Just reinforce this it idea reinforces of guilt. reinforces the idea, absolutely. Right? Yeah. So let's get rid of the word sorry. Mm-hmm. You say, excuse me, pardon me. Mm-hmm. I apologize. Gotcha. Which are appropriate, mm-hmm. but not sorry. And people will say after a week or two or a month, because it takes them a while to really get a hang of it because it slips out so often, yeah. that they find that. For some reason, their confidence is starting to actually improve just by eliminating the word sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, that's a very simple homework assignment, right? but hard for you know, a lot of people to do. Mm-hmm. Or I notice that when we're talking about really serious subjects, you're smiling and laughing. Mm. Cut it out. Yeah. Just cut it out. And, and I say that, you know, and I will say, you know, you got to cut it out. And then we'll say, well, okay, so that's kind of a light approach, but... Then to say, well, we have to be able to match your expression with the content. Mm. Mm. Because how are you really going to address this issue if you're laughing at it? Right. Because that means you're not taking it seriously. seriously. Oh. So how do you expect anybody else to take it seriously if you're not taking yourself seriously? And once you call people on the, 
the mismatch. Right, mm-hmm. right. Some people will just start crying spontaneously. Wow, yeah. Because no one has really forced them to look at that. Mm-hmm. So these are little homework assignments. They're not huge. Yeah. But yeah. enough where there's a subtlety in, in change of behavior that will also change cognition because it's a correlation. It's cognitive behavior, th- right. CBT, cognitive behavior CBT, therapy, right. CBT. So the idea is if you, you know, we can change your thoughts and your behavior will change. Sometimes it's just easier to change a behavior. Yes. And if you change the behavior, the thoughts, the thoughts get pulled, kicking and screaming Absolutely. to match the behavior. So you stop saying sorry, the attitude changes even though we're not necessarily working directly on the attitude. Right. We're just kind of taking a roundabout. So, so what, what Dr. Shapiro said essentially is that people can go for decades uh, in these behaviors and uh, that, that are uh, not, not, help, not helpful. And literally within a few weeks, mm-hmm. a, few, a few months of, of, of some of these not very big cognitive behavioral uh, treatments and, uh, and, and homework, change a whole lifetime's worth of, of, of mm-hmm. behaviors that were not helpful dysfunctional and I think to, to, to he's reinforcing that by saying that if you if you don't engage in the process as the client or patient you're not going to make that transition right. Right? right have you ever had a patient or a, a client ex- experience you know extinguishing of whatever that symptom is with without actively engaging in that process themselves and doing the homework doing the work no okay. and not no I mean yeah. and because then it, that comes up at some point Right. To say, hey, listen, are you really in a position right. to utilize therapy? Yeah. Right. I understand it's hard. Right. What I'm asking you to do is hard. So it might have to be going through and say, well, what is making it hard for you mm-hmm. to do this? If you know intellectually mm-hmm. this makes sense, mm-hmm. what's the holdup? Yeah. So mm-hmm. then we have to look and see, well, what is, what's going on here? And that might mean, are there things going on at home mm-hmm. um, that we haven't really addressed? Is there a childhood history that's connected to it mm-hmm. that we haven't yes. really addressed just yet, um, are there expectations? So if you expect yourself to always fail, mm-hmm. well, and you've been like that since yes. you were a kid, mm-hmm. and that's been reinforced for the last 30, 40, 50 years, mm-hmm. you know, yes, we can get some symptom relief through a couple of simple things, but if you've never really thought about these connections um, and say, well, that was then our understanding coping strategies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We understand mm-hmm. that, you know, you grew up in an alcoholic household or household where there's abuse or neglect. Mm-hmm. As a kid, you develop coping strategies to get That's through right. that. Dysfunctional or not, it gets you through life. Get, right. And at the time, I'll say, look, at the time, functional. Absolutely. It saves you. The problem is then you take these, you know, coping strategies from childhood and you apply them right. in adulthood, but the context is no longer there. No, yeah, and so what had been adaptive right. is now maladaptive. Right, right. right. Kind of working with combat trauma. It's like yes. you learn to be hypervigilant and hyper aware to keep right. yourself and those around you That's safe. Right. Protects but you. when you do that in a civilian capacity, mm-hmm. it becomes incapacitating sometimes right. because now you're looking at everything right. and everything appears to be a potential threat. Yeah, it's right. a threat. Right. Right. I think um, that that dovetails beautifully into the you know, next thing that we kinda wanted to bring up, which is that your current work now working a lot with PTSD, people with PTSD, combat veterans. Um, and I think specifically for for a this group of people that are, you know, taught so much to take care of the person to their left and right, to be vigilant, to to be strong, to have the solution all the time. Um, I'm I'm wondering what it takes to um, help 
convince some of these people to engage in the therapeutic process when there's so much stigma in our world, again, from TV and movies about, mm-hmm. you know, get, getting therapy, that if you can't deal with this privately and personally, there must be something weak about you or broken about you. So how how do you meet people and convince people that this is a tool, this is a survival strategy, this is a um, you know, a, a, a technique and a skill as important as any that they learned, you know, in, in the service. Well, with regards to the stigma, I think, you know, it, what's interesting to me is in the military community, you know, especially if you're near a VA, mm-hmm. people know there's treatment there. They just don't like it. Yes. They don't like the VA. They don't like the process. Right. So they know it's there. I haven't, because I've been doing this for a while, I've developed a reputation in the area. So people say, hey, you've got a problem, go see Shapiro. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, If you don't want to go to the VA, go see Shapiro. If you're not Mm -hmm. happy with the VA, go see Shapiro. So Mm -hmm. there's a network. What's interesting is, to me, the veterans, it's kind of almost acceptable now to go get treatment for PTSD. Good. The group that is out there with no help are first responders. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's a group that I see very infrequently, mm-hmm. rarely, there's only one fire chief in the area that actually refers, has referred over the last 10 years, um, maybe two people. Wow. But um, I never get referrals from any police departments. I don't get referrals from EMS, don't get them from fire districts, but I'll get referrals for veterans. Wow. So even for yeah. first responders, there's even more of a stigma. Mm-hmm. It's a I, I mean, I have a CSI, a former crime scene investigator, mm-hmm. severe, severe PTSD. I've had, yeah, I've had uh, other people come to our academy clinic. Yes, they're, they're first response. They're digging out bodies and, and burnt bodies and smells. And it's yeah. it's just as bad. Incredible. It's just as bad, it's just as, bad as, as, as uh, yeah. some of the military things that we've heard and, about. And it's repeated. And people don't realize. Right. They think about, right. I think most people, again, from TV, right. unless they're right. watching, right. you know, SVU. Most people's experience with, with the police and fire department is, here's a traffic ticket. Yeah. Right. Right. Or, here, you know, here, we'll get your cat. Or right. we'll... Right. we'll, we'll right rescue you for, for something. They don't realize how many suicides yeah. they yeah. respond to. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, what do they experience when they respond to a car accident? Yep. Yeah. Um, child abuse. Yep. Yeah. And it's repeated. Right. Over right. and over and over. So with yep. a combat veteran, in a lot of ways, it's easier. Yeah. Because we know they're not going to be redeployed. Sure. Right. But with the first responder, they go, go back to they, work, they've yeah. got to go back unless the they shift. are going to retire. Right. Um, from from that profession, right, do something right. different, and there's not a lot of empathy, not a lot of sympathy, in the first responder community yeah. for getting treatment, mm. for the or recognition or treatment. So there's a lot more alcohol abuse, yeah. mm-hmm. drug abuse. Yeah. You know, dealt with police officers. You know, got caught stealing narcotics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, from an evidence just to right. kind of neutralize or numb yep. some of the pain. So the combat veterans, there's there's more. It's more acceptable because people know, oh, combat. Yeah. You go into a war zone, you leave the, your safety of your country, you go into a war zone, you know that you're in trouble, you know, you have people around you and you, mm-hmm. uh, and you know that you're always on. Uh, yeah. The people in, um, that are first responders is different shifts, right. shifts of work. Yeah. So with, with the warrior community, the veteran community, my, my work has really dovetailed um, or really came out of a reaction to the failed treatments. Um, at the VA. Mm-hmm. And, and when I say mm-hmm. failed, I mean like people dropping out sure. because mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. too intense yeah. or they, they felt like they weren't being understood. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. years ago when it was really hard, you, you have to wait, you have an 11 o'clock appointment and you're still waiting at three o'clock. Yeah. Yep. And then you get really upset yeah. and now they're going to, well, this person's been 
really upset. They're agitated. Yeah. Now right. they're going to get put on a medication that's right. sedating. Right. Right. Um, it's not really treating the problem. The no. problem was they were frustrated because they had an 11 o'clock appointment right. and it's three o'clock. Right. So um, helping them understand the connection between um, their warrior mentality and their civilian mentality, yeah. the relationship between a forward operating base or FOB mm-hmm. and how they behave on a FOB and how they're behaving and kind of treating their house mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. a forward operating base, you know, closing the, locking everything up, closing the windows, closing the blinds, mm-hmm. um, having weapons distributed across the house, mm-hmm. booby trapping in some mm-hmm. cases. So being able to highlight, it's like, yeah, this makes perfect, what you're doing makes perfect sense. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? There's perfect logic. And for most of the problems of people coming to see me with, the behavior is perfectly logical. The problem is the rationale for doing it. Say that again. Say it again. The the behaviors, what they're doing makes perfect sense. It's logical. Yes. Mm -hmm. If I believe that there's someone outside of my door waiting to take a shot at me, it makes perfect sense to close my blinds, to keep weapons, to protect my family. Right. All of that makes it's logical. Right. It's the original thought, the premise, the yeah. rationale that's that needs to be addressed. That is incredibly powerful, yeah. and I think very salient for all kinds of maladaptive behaviors that we come up with. Right. If if we're you know anxious in mm-hmm. public, or um, you know mm-hmm. we deal with our depression by can, you know canceling all of our responsibilities, the behavior itself seems logical at the time. I mean, we've even talked about this in relationship sure. to suicide mm-hmm. that um, you know can seem like a, a logical solution to a problem. Um, that that's incredibly powerful. Thank you for talking about that. Yeah. So once you highlight all that for people, and also when you say you make what you're doing makes perfect sense. Yes. If it's perfectly logical. Right. Yeah. Then people are like, oh my god, no. yeah. I'm not a crazy person. I'm not crazy. Yeah. That's, that's the first thing, right? Right. It's to kind of normalize, in a way, normalize um, their reaction to whatever's going on, mm-hmm. so that because if you've got people telling you that you're sick, yeah, and you're telling yourself that you're sick, I'm well, saying, well, you're not sick. You know, this is not right now. What we're doing is not really an illness like PTSD. Mm-hmm. It's like I just said, look, it's not a, it's not an illness. This is an injury, mm-hmm. right? You've been injured. It's like you know when we talked. I think we mm-hmm. talked about like during COVID, mm-hmm. um, people worked in emergency departments and ICUs. People were perfectly fine, right before you know, right before the pandemic. Then you see all of this horrible death, yeah. lonely death, suffer, you know, suffocating death. Mm-hmm. And you end up with PTSD on the other side of it. Do you say, well, these people are now mentally ill? Right. Or do you mm-hmm. say they were scarred by their experience? Yeah. I think most of would say they were scarred by their experience. Mm-hmm. So when I talked to veterans, I was like, you were scarred by your experience. You're not mentally ill. Mm-hmm. And for them, that idea, you're not mentally ill. You've been injured. Mm-hmm. Look, we can do brain scans. We can show the change in, in mm-hmm. how the, what the brain looks like with chronic PTSD. Mm-hmm. We can look at the hippocampus. We can look at the amygdala. We can look at the prefrontal cortex. Mm-hmm. We know that that this is the case. And there are very few um, problems who say, look, this is, in the absence of exposure to trauma, you can't have this diagnosis. So yeah. this is an injury. Sure. And, one, and, that, and so then it changes the dialogue. Say, like, this is in psychotherapy. Right. This is rehab. Yeah. And so uh, when you talk to veterans and you use a rehab model, it's like, well, if you've blown a knee or you've hurt, you're, people are used to physical therapy. Sure. Mm-hmm. They're used to rehab. So when you start couching therapy in terms of, no, this is rehab, mm-hmm. not psychotherapy, it again destigmatizes mm-hmm. the process mm-hmm. of what mm-hmm. we're doing Absolutely. just by redefining. Right what we're doing. I think that reframing is incredibly powerful and gives people a sense of agency and and empowerment that it's not some fundamental flaw in me, again, detaching it from the identity. That's uh, incredibly powerful. 
Maybe, and I'm extrapolating I mean, because you talked about the military but and the first responders, but for us, a lot of youngsters, a lot of adults have had so much childhood trauma mm-hmm. and the dysfunction that came along with it, and now they have a hard time at work and relationships mm-hmm. and anger control, et cetera. And that is a type of kind of injury from your youth that you're bringing, uh, that you're bringing with you triggered by whatever the, the, the triggers are and stuff like that. So that's a, right. the more common version that we see, yeah. And, and, you know, so again, along the lines of trauma, people, you know, one of the things that I, I see a lot of that I, I don't, I'm not really sure why people aren't spending more time talking about it. You know, we, we there's a lot of media about bullying in childhood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, no one really talks about it is, well, what's the long-term consequence of that? Sure. Mm-hmm. So you're being bullied in elementary school, middle school, high school, but you're coming to me when you're 50 and 60. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that stuff that was going on then is still right. Yeah, it's very it's still driving. Yeah, right. You know, so we talked about those adaptive coping strategies, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. is like don't trust. Someone says that they like you, but then you're then they mm-hmm. turn on they you. turn on you. Right. Well, as an adult, and you don't trust people. Right. Mm-hmm. right. No one, you know, it's like well, yeah, well, maybe that's a consequence right. of this history of being bullied that no one really took, but you're using that same coping strategy, just avoid, don't say, don't do anything, mm-hmm. or be overly ingratiating to sure, try to yes. get people right. to like you. Right. And then you're doing the same things in adulthood, and it's it's affecting your marriage, affecting your relationship with your kids, with work, yeah. um, because of this now maladaptive coping strategy. So once you allow people to, some insight into what are they doing behaviorally right. mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. might be reinforcing um, this way of thinking or reinforcing these problems... You kind of have to lay out, for me, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you have to lay out, here's what I see as the problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, in a more comprehensive way, in a way that yes. they understand. Yes. Give them a framework to understand themselves. Right. And that's, I think, what misses, what gets missed a lot mm-hmm. in traditional therapy is there's no framework. Right. So how can you establish a goal, short or long term, if you don't have a framework for what you're actually dealing with? Right. Do you think... Um, you know, you chose to become a psychologist and not a psychiatrist. Do you think that psychiatry shares that sort of view with you? Do you think they're at odds with one another? Do you think things could be a lot better if there was more of a shared, you know, kind of frame framework yeah, yeah, for helping people plan. functionally get better? You know, years ago. Well, first, let me just clarify. The reason I didn't go into psychiatry <laughs> is because. I hated organic chemistry. Okay. Um, and Good Kenya, reason. And, and it was like, I could, medical school is not for me. So I don't know whether or not I would have gone into sure. psychiatry, yeah. but mine was like, you know, my math and science skills were not, and I didn't want to put in the effort for, for medical school. So I took this route to be able to help people. Um, I, I can't remember when it was, but it was years ago. I read an article. Um, it, it, I think it must have been in a psychology journal. Mm-hmm where they, they surveyed psychiatrists and psychologists mm-hmm. about what do they read. And even though our endpoint, our goals are the same, mm-hmm. in this article, we don't read each other's yep. journals. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. So, By the way, I could tell you that, that the therapists and psychiatrists don't talk on the same patient either. They don't communicate on the same, if they're not in the same office. Right. Almost they're not never. in the same office. Yeah, Almost never. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think the other part of it, because of it insurance. It's so counterintuitive. It, yeah, yeah, it it's amazing. so counterintuitive. Right, right. Because right, no one thinks about taking a team approach. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's to easy this. to do inpatient because you have, they're on the floor and you, and you have to have rounds, you have to have team meetings. And, right, yeah, and you can and work with nursing meetings. staff, right. and the family. Yeah, right. But, you know, on an outpatient basis, and, right. and some of this is also, I think, driven by 
uh, really driven by insurance. Yes, yeah. of course. They don't pay psychiatrists to do talk. Right. So if you've got 10 minutes, 15 minutes with a psychiatrist, all they can really do is say, how are your symptoms and right. are you having side effects? Side right? effects, and you're gone. right. Yeah. So how, what am I going to, in a way, what am I collaborating? Right. Sure. Now, I might send a letter saying, hey, listen, I saw this. Right. I hear this. I th- I'd like you to take this into consideration when you're working with the medication. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here's a diagnostic issue that I know this patient did not bring up with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this mm-hmm. might be why the medication isn't. Yep. Because you're addressing the, maybe yep. the wrong problem or. Yep. It's a different medication. Or, hey, by the way, you know what? They've already been on two, three um, um, SSRIs. Stop. Right. Yep. You know, with right. the SSRIs yeah. already. And it's not it's not doing anything. So let's, you know, see right. through therapy, can we help them get off the SSRIs? Because I'll tell people a lot of times, I cannot. I cannot make you happy. I cannot help you get happy if you've got side effects from SSRIs that decrease your motivation, mm. that sap your sex drive or your ability to have sex because mm-hmm. um, it helps you connect and that's exactly what we run into and Vanessa I talked about this we mm-hmm. were putting kids on earlier and you know yeah. SSRIs very early but preteens and then they never have, understand their libido they never understand uh, their energy they never understand a lot of stuff because as, if you take away the depression anxiety unfortunately take away some of the positive stuff the the, the, the goal setting and some of the energy to to, to, to be driving because you're if you're rely, you're too chilled you're not motivated and mm-hmm. so you need a little bit of edge to, to do some of these things right and it, it removes that edge. So yeah. I think about the SSRIs as kind of right. splinting right. Yes. emotions. Right. Right? So we'll splint it like a finger. We'll splint it right. so you don't get depressed. But when you splint it, you give up the upside. Yeah. If. And so, yeah, you people also then have to understand. Mm-hmm. Because there's an action bias mm-hmm. for physicians. Yep. There's an action bias for patients. Yep. If I come in and I say, I'm depressed, yep. there's an action bias. Do something. Right. right. Yep. As opposed to saying, you know what? That's a normal reaction. Right. Give it six months. Go to Mm. therapy. Do something without the medicine. And if it's still not working, if you're still not well, come back. But there's this bias to do something. Always. When a lot of human emotion is natural. You're supposed to experience sadness every once in a while. It's part of the human condition. Right. Um, That's one of the problems we hear about from medicines is it's too blunting. I can't cry at a funeral. I can't laugh at a movie. That 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 I'm, I'm not as depressed or anxious anymore. But I don't feel anything else either. And that's uh, whether it's sexual or, or emotional. Right. And that's that's uh, that's very artificial. Uh, unfortunately, you're right. And so as a, as a psychologist, you know, I have a PhD and I have an MD. I'm in a very difficult position right. to say to a physician, right? Hey. Listen, you know, the medication, this is your wheelhouse. Yeah. I'm right. talking outside of my wheelhouse. You know, I think something needs to be done here. Uh, I'm, first of all, more times than I'm not comfortable taking that position. You know, I'll talk to the, to the patient say, you know, they're like, well, I don't have any motivation. Uh, I can't have sex. And it's like, these are side effects right. mm-hmm. that you need to talk to your doctor about. Because a lot of the, a lot of people don't realize that the lack of motivation or right. the emotional blunting mm-hmm. are side effects. Right. Right. I mean, so a lot of physicians will take it as to mean that the, you need more medicine because you sound just as depressed. If yeah. not, you know, so it's, it has not helped. You're still without ahedonic or hypohedonic. You don't get pleasure from doing things that should give you pleasure, etc. So some people will just say, well, you must still be depressed. Let me jack up your dose or add something or else. Or add something, add, else, add something to else Or give you right. a benzo or whatever whatever it is. And so, and benzodiazepines are probably a, a big no-no for you. They really blunt everything. Alcohol and benzos are kind of blunt. Also, you don't know what you what you're working with and 
you know, the only time I'm like, hey, look, you know, benzos are going to be really, really helpful. If you've got a flying phobia. Sure. Sure. Oh, yes. Right? It's a short term. We know right. exactly yeah, why right. you're here. Yeah. Exactly. Because right? after, you know, TWA, right. when they were here, they used to run a fear of flying program. You could send people. Ah. They'd fly you to and from Chicago, to and from Kansas City. Really? On awesome. Ah. Exposure therapy. Exposure oh, I therapy. love it. Yeah. But when TWA left, yeah. that ah. whole ability to do this kind of exposure-based treatment yeah. with an airline went away with it. I've never wow, heard yeah. of this. is very cool. Yeah. So now it's like, look, just dose up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Take it a day or two before as you're getting anxious. Take it, follow your doctor's instructions. If you sleep on the flight, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But, you know, yeah. you're only going to get, and this would be on the physician, right. just get a limited number of right. pills. Yeah. Exactly. Don't give them a 90-day yeah. supply. No. Right. Uh, so they have to pay. So there are uses. Right. Remember, brief. when they first came out, just like opioids, there's men for a brief. Everything. Sleep, yes. sleep medicines, everything had to brief. Uh, and uh, right. somehow we, we twisted it into f- f- decades of, of, yeah, of continued use. Ambien yeah, and, uh, and Xanax. Right. So, you know, I have nothing against the medications if they're working. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of the collaboration, there's really very yeah. little. And I think with COVID, increase that isolation. Yes. Mm. Between everybody, because I work out of right. my I work out of my home now. Right. right. It's all right. telehealth. I get no mm-hmm. interaction with other with other professionals. Yeah. So that just made the collaborative process even more difficult. Yes. Yes. Unless I think unless you have like a friendly relationship. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With another physician, it's like, hey, by the way, this is what's going on. Mm-hmm. But you might call him on a Saturday, right. you know, right. or you know, I'll go out for happy hour, with, you know, for drinks with with another doctor. Right. Like, oh, yep. by the way, let's talk about these these people right. over drinks. Yeah, which that's is not not, a, not quite a professional setting. Yeah, so, but it's yeah. the only setting sometimes yep. that yeah. we right. have now right. to actually have a sit down yeah. and spend one or two hours talking about patients. Not, hey, do you have ten minutes between patients? Right. And I talked to you just before this. This is what happened when we got hospitalists, good people, blah, blah, blah. I have a relative who's a hospitalist, but it, it, it segregated physicians from each other because they didn't have to come to the common place, a mm-hmm. hospital or the doctor's lounge or see each other's in the hallway. All these interactions that are non-formal, not, you're not at a meeting, not at a grand rounds, are a big deal in terms of uh, understanding patients, getting more information, checking yourself, checking your knowledge, kind of these curbsides and stuff like that. All that stuff is very important. Just being able to sit in the doctor's lounge. Yep, yep. You know, yep. with other specialists. Right. Like just, hey, what's right. going on? Right. And sharing ideas that you right. hear about this, you hear right. about this, what's going on? So just that's that, because right. that's a social context. It is. Right. Very big. It's a big deal. Yeah, I you know, learned cardiology, nephrology, whenever you listen to, you know, whenever mm-hmm. you're a therapist and a psychiatrist, yeah, you've got uh, uh, yeah, a constellation of opinions. Absolutely. So I know that you mentioned um, we well we've we've referenced, re- the referenced a couple of times exposure therapy and CBT CBT cognitive behavioral mm-hmm. therapy. Are there any other like therapy modalities that you like to employ? Are you interested in any other specific ones? Um, help our listeners kind of understand. It seems like you have a very uh, practical and effective model for therapy. So I want our listeners to hear what got, kind of what techniques go into that as well. Right. Okay. So the the practical part, um, you know, talking about my, my career, mm-hmm. I also spent 14 years as a financial advisor. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I'll do it. Right. Well. Well. So one of the things that being a financial advisor taught me was that the the client should always expect from you some kind of result or return. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. I didn't get that from graduate school. Heck yeah. no. <laughs> it, was, it was like, you know, if you lose money or th- you, things don't go right, you're fired. Yeah. So there was always this idea, it's like I have to always 
not prove myself, but always perform that there's an expect always an expectation. Yes, right. but a in, goal, when to you're provide getting, a return. Yeah. <laughs> to provide a return, yeah. but yeah, you don't get line. that when right. you're in graduate school or in training. No one says your patients expect you right. to help them get better. And get better. And stay better, right? So, you know. Look, I'm a much better therapist than I was a financial advisor. <laughs> um, you know, and, I think, and I think that's important because I like doing this way better right. than being a financial advisor. But I did learn this idea that people should expect from me help. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which means I can't just sit back and listen to your problems. Right. Mm-hmm. So the cognitive behavioral model works for me because there's a logic behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if you think this way, this is probably the resulting behavior. Mm-hmm. Right. If you do these behaviors, it's going to reinforce this way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And if I can tell people, hey, do this, not that, mm-hmm. and really emphasize that, you know, in a kind of behavioral model, that's, you know, a big piece of it. So I really like that because it's, there's actionable right. things that you can do. Mm-hmm. But along mm-hmm. with that, with, um, you know, I, a lot of people talk about like, dialectical behavior therapy, which was really developed for borderline personality disorder. Mm -hmm. But I think more people are using dialectical behavior therapy um, for multiple problems, which is really more, I think, my understanding is, how do you cope with these ongoing flurry of of emotions? And so there's a lot, there is a lot of homework, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it really is to cope with a chronic problem that Mm -hmm. is very, very difficult to treat in traditional psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that's very action oriented. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I just, you know, I never, you know, working with borderline personalities, it's a very tough, very tough Mm -hmm. person, you know, um, population that I never really felt. It was too much for sure. me. It yep. didn't fit my my personality. Most, most therapists, psychiatrists already say the exact same thing. Yeah, it, it's so, really, yeah, really hard. Yeah. So, you know, God bless those right. people who are right. working with yeah. uh, borderline personality disorder or eating disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, acceptance and commitment therapy. Mm-hmm. You know, being to accept this is how I certain things mm-hmm. and be mm-hmm. okay with it. Acknowledge it. You know, and I think also part of my thoughts about therapy have also changed as I've gotten more involved mm-hmm. in the psychedelic community. Right. Um, yeah, would you speak about that? I, we talked about different types of therapies, and you talked about exposure and response and uh, CBT and uh, um, uh, and acceptance and, com- and commitment therapy. So, would you talk a little bit about this? The, what you kind of come to in the last? Uh, I guess you got your certification for. Would you talk for about psychedelic? Yeah, psychedelic yeah, assisted psychotherapy. So, you know, there's a lot of push. You, people read a lot in the popular press about um, the use of psychedelics mm-hmm. um, for. Um, mental health purposes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I my exposure to that was this was kind of at a, a life changing event. Mm-hmm. I, I, mm-hmm. I mentioned you know I, I went into cardiac arrest, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and I was like, man, after that, I was like, I probably need to start rethinking how I live mm-hmm. and including my practice because I was seeing a lot. Even when I was in behavioral medicine, I was seeing a lot. A lot of people every week, and I was like, I got to do something differently. Yes, sure. yes. And I attended a, t- a trauma conference where it was the first time I had heard about using psychedelics mm. to treat trauma. An emotional trauma. An emotional, emotional trauma. Emotional trauma. trauma. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, but they presented the science behind it. It wasn't just like, hey, let's just take psychedelics. Right. right. They, pre- right. they presented the science behind why it works. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was like, holy cow. You oh, know, yeah, it's a big deal. I can get these mm-hmm. people better, faster, mm-hmm. more durably. Mm-hmm. With this, I was like, I'm in. So it was like, a re, it, for me, it kind of rejuvenated my interest, interest in psychotherapy. Yeah, right. 
And I felt, you know, I was like, oh my God, at, at this point, the tail end of my career, yeah. mm-hmm. to be at the cutting edge of mm-hmm. a technology or a, an approach to psychotherapy, mm-hmm. I feel blessed yeah. mm-hmm. to be in the right place at the right time to hear it in that moment. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I went and I got a certification um, in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, the mm-hmm. training because of, of legal issues, our training is on ketamine, and I think for most training mm-hmm. programs, is right. using ketamine right. as a, only, as a psychedelic, kind of right. psychedelic hallucinogenic or legal one in right. the United States right now, right? Which it's not technically a psychedelic, right? It's a dissociative right. anesthetic, but yeah. similar effects on the, the body. People right. will have a psychedelic experience sure. um, on um, on ketamine, just like MDMA, not really a psychedelic, mm-hmm. it's an empathogen, mm-hmm. but it's really being studied in combat trauma, mm-hmm. you know, through um, multi-site. Can you, uh, can you name this? Because can we talk to kind of define what psychedelic is and put out some names and acronym or whatever so that people understand right. kind of the, the field that we're talking about? Because people read about it and hear about it, yeah. but there's no con, no framework or context. So what had happened, so this is way back in the 50s and 60s, they were exploring psychedelics for all sorts of things. Uh, and then it got squashed back in the Nixon era whenever they got scheduled right. in the D, Drug Enforcement Agency scheduled as Schedule 1, which means uh, addictive potential without any therapeutic benefit. And then it, it squashed squash for official research for decades. Right. Uh, and so can you tell me, I, I just kind of did this yeah. superficial. Could you so, tell us about that, please? Because, so, and how yeah, we got here? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, psychedelics, plant medicine has been used by indigenous people all over the world. Right. For hundreds or thousands of yeah, years. Thousands so it's not like this is new. Right. right. It's just new in the West. Right. 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 <laughs> so there's Speak plenty of, there's plenty of history behind the use. Mm-hmm. Um, LSD was first discovered in, I believe, 1948. Mm-hmm. Um, through a researcher at Sandoz Labs. Mm-hmm. And after from that, um, it was at one point up until the early 60s, the most researched psychiatric medication mm. in the world yeah. using LSD as a psych, psychotomimetic. Mm-hmm. Okay. Psychotomimetic. So that LSD would produce psychotic symptoms Psychotic. similar to right. schizophrenia. Yeah. So the idea is we'll use LSD mm-hmm. as a way to study schizophrenia. Schizophrenia, uh-huh. right, right. Okay. Turns out though that the psychedelic experience on LSD has nothing to do with schizophrenia. Schizophrenia. <laughs> <laughs> but it was still being researched for, uh-huh. for things like, you know, dep- really depression. Right. But then it went from researching it for depression. Then the artist community started getting involved. Artists, yes. Um, engineers, software engineers for creativity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So LSD took on this whole route from let's study it as a mm-hmm. way of studying psychiatric illness mm-hmm. to can we increase creativity? Yeah, mind right. expansion. Can we right. increase mind expansion and peace, right. peacefulness? Mm-hmm. Then it became a social issue. Mm-hmm. Um, as people started saying, well, maybe we can use this. Well, well, I'll say, then the military got a hold of it right. mm-hmm. to say, can we can we disable people yeah. using things like LSD? Then the CIA got a hold of it and say, well, can we use this as an interrogation mm-hmm. or mind control um, <laughs> weaponize medication? It, weaponize it, right. Weaponize yeah. it. And then we get into the social aspect in the 60s and the mm-hmm. flower children, the hippies. Yep, yep, yep. And that's really when it got out of the labs. And yeah. the same thing with MDMA, when it got out of the lab and into the clubs mm-hmm. that... Um, it got shut down. Right. The thing was, the thing is, these these the medications that we're talking about. Right. So I was like, what are we talking about? LSD. Right. Was the first um, one that we're using in the West. Magic mushrooms or psilocybin. Mm-hmm. DMT, dimethyltryptamine, which 
is a naturally occurring it's in our brains psychedelic right. that is produced in the pineal gland, yeah. which also produces melatonin. We mm-hmm. have no idea why. It's mm-hmm. very interesting. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like we have an endocannabinoid system. Mm-hmm. We just figured that out in the 80s and then find out that, yeah, we've got an antamide and 2-AG, which are endogenous cannabinoids. Well, we've got mm-hmm. a whole system set up to receive cannabis. Mm-hmm. So um, then we've got DMT, 5-MeO-DMT, people that like to toad venom. Mm, I don't, I've not heard of that. Yep. So what's, what's, um, what do they call it again? Uh, 5-MeO-DMT. So it's a different molecular structure than DMT, right. but it comes from the Sonoran Desert Toad. Okay. Um, now, but they're synthesizing it because they don't, you know, people are going and catching these toads. Sure. It's a very small <laughs> environment that they yeah. live in. Sure. So you have, those are the right. kind of like the traditional and ayahuasca but the active ingredient in ayahuasca is DMT. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then you've you've got uh, the, the lysergamides, which is really just LSD and all the derivatives, mm-hmm. and then uh, the phenol. Uh, I forget the the technical name, but things like mescaline. Okay. That comes sure. from peyote or the San San Pedro cactus. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So these are the primary psychedelics, but mm-hmm. the ones that are really being researched mm-hmm. are the serotonergic tryptamine based. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Like magic mushrooms and LSD and DMT, those are really the one people are talking about psychedelic. That's really what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, um, the five H two A receptor. These are when you say serotonergic, that's that's what the receptors we think that's yeah. yeah. So when we talk about psychi- let's talk about SSRIs like right, Prozac, right, Paxil, right. they act on the five HT one one A receptor, the two A receptors for the psychedelics. Right. So they work on different. So it's still serotonin. Right. Just different receptors. Receptors. One right. is it activating. So with the psychedelics, it's activating. Let's approach your problem. Let's address your problem. Or the 1A, which is let's suppress, suppress. the reaction. Okay. Yeah, that's right. that's so it's yeah, a yeah. Di- whole different mechanism of action. Interesting. So using the psychedelics allows people to approach the problem better with a full range of emotion rather than suppressing an emotional reaction. Mm. So therefore, the sets and settings. So can you talk about that? The the, the, the drug dose mindset and mindset and setting and, and, setting. and then, and then and integration. Could you just, we'll close out with that because that's fascinating. Because right. mm-hmm. that's very powerful. I tell people Prozac doesn't matter if you slept or ate, whatever, taking your Prozac, you feel the same if you've been on it regularly. If you do any of the psychedelics, ketamine in our case, it's a big difference in right. how, if yeah, you didn't absolutely. sleep or eat or you just were in a fight with your spouse before you came in to get your ketamine, it's a big difference in your experience. So when you're talking about psychotherapy and different ways of doing psychotherapy, so mm-hmm. one way of looking at it is like, I'll give you an SSRI. It's a passive approach to medicine. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take this and I'm going to wait for it to do its business. Sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. If I take psychedelics, I tell people it's a partnership. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. You have to work with the mushrooms. You work with mm-hmm. the LSD. You work with the peyote. You work mm-hmm. with it. Mm-hmm. Um, because you might say, this is what I want out of it. And also, it's like, I know it sounds kind of weird, but... You might think this is what you want, but the medicine might might have something Mm -hmm. very different in mind for you. Mm -hmm. So it's an active partnership. So while my therapeutic approach is active, I tell people, this is not a passive, take it and wait. So when people are reading about psychedelics, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, my thing is like, don't go out and just take a handful of psychedelics. No, please don't. Because if that were the therapeutic benefit, then anybody who dropped acid or mushrooms at a music festival would be be, be great. Would be failing great. Right? But that's not the case. So we set up, we refer to set and setting. Set refers to the mindset. What's Mm -hmm. the mindset that you're going into this with? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'll spend time, three or four sessions Mm -hmm. before the actual experience Mm -hmm. to say, what is it how do you want to use? Right. Mm-hmm. What's your intention? What's your intention? Mm-hmm. How do you want to use mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. process and have them journaling and get their mindset mm-hmm. moving in that direction? Mm-hmm. 
then they'll do whether it's microdosing, small doses over a couple of weeks or a macro dose. Then when they're done, it's like, how do we integrate the information? Because these experiences, especially in a big macro, yes. can be very confusing. Yeah. They might not have any direct, or it might be hard to find, mm-hmm. a direct one-to-one link between your your intention Problems and what did you come up with. Yeah. So the integration part is how do we make sense mm-hmm. of, of that experience? experience mm-hmm. right. And sort of digest it into useful yep. mm-hmm. cognitive bits, right? Yeah, And this yeah. is so foreign to almost uh, probably therapists, psychiatrists, everybody except uh, somebody who's focused in the type of therapy that you're just talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so foreign. It's such a foreign concept. Right. And it's very, and the thing is for a lot of people, you know, you can experience, we all experience periods of sadness. We right. all experience mm-hmm. periods mm-hmm. of anxiety. Mm-hmm. But these experiences on psychedelics are so unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There is no way. Yeah. You know, so sometimes instead of journalists, like, you know, you're just going to have to draw, you know, instead of journaling, it's like get some colored pencils, get some right. markers, because right. you might not be able to describe in words. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we're gonna have right. you do some artwork right. or some you know other ways mm-hmm. of, of integrating that information. Mm-hmm. And different psychedelics, uh, different doses give you totally different experiences and uh, length of experiences and-, and, and uh, Right, so, yeah. so right. DMT is interesting because it's like a 15 yeah, minute. very short. And one of the real cool things that, I, that I've been reading about is the research being done for things on stroke. Mm. So how do you take advantage of the neuroplasticity and synaptogenesis mm-hmm. mm-hmm. for a stroke victim? Yeah. And since a DMT trip is only 15 minutes long, mm-hmm. can we use that? Not for the psychedelic part, right, no. but sure. for the synaptogenesis. Yeah, the synaptogenesis. So what Larry's talking about is this idea that that, uh, that uh, brain connections between neurons are destroyed with depression and, uh, and, and stroke in this case, and that we can regenerate some of these um, uh, uh, synapses or connections that are part, help us with everything from right. movement to memory to speech. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very powerful so yeah, stuff. every everyone has a slightly different duration, right? right. Uh, a different uh, a different impact, but a lot of that again is going to be impacted by the set. Yeah, Mindset. and so mm-hmm. you know if you look at indigenous tribes, their set oh, yeah. using psychedelics completely different because they grow up with right. it as part sure. of their culture. Right, yeah. it's very cultural. You don't hear a lot of people complaining about bad trips in the indigenous community because right. yeah. it's part of their culture. Right. But we'll hear it pretty frequently because yep. it's not really part of our culture. No. Absolutely. Well, I think that's pretty much all we have time for today. I think that was a great foreshadowing to the next time that you join <laughs> us, Larry. We're relaxing again. Yeah, absolutely. Wait, yeah, definitely. this has been great. Th- this is, it's just such an exciting, you know, frontier. I'm so grateful that you've been able to come to this um, at your career and um, that you can, you know, share it with us as well. Yes. Um, certainly, you know, at the Ketamine Clinic, we have a lot of interest in seeing mm-hmm. how this can help people even more. So we're so thankful for your time today. Thank you for your experience, sharing all yeah. the experience well before you ever got into uh, into psychedelics and ketamine, helping people more quickly that way. So we appreciate your time and uh, and your uh, this morning, and thank you. And we want to see you again. I appreciate well, it. I'll be back. Thank you. As long as the invitation's open. Thanks, Dr. Spiro. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening today. As always, if you want to get involved with the pod, you can send us questions or feedback at our email address, the not or at notyourdocpod at gmail.com you can also check out our website notyourdoc.com um, that'll have you know links to Dr. Tadros's blog as well as all of the podcast episodes you can reach us that way as well thanks again Dr. Tadros Dr. Thank Shapiro, you. Seth, I'm Vanessa we'll see you again next time thank bye. you bye bye This previous podcast represents 
my opinions and the opinions of my guests. This is not medical advice, and I'm not establishing a physician-patient relationship with any listener. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only, and because each patient is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions that you may have.